The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Of you may be familiar with a story, a story in the Old Testament during the days of Elisha, the prophet, in the book of 2 Kings, when the city of Samaria, the northern capital of Israel, was under siege by the king and the army of Aram. The siege was so severe that famine set in across the city, and uh, things were so desperate that the head of a donkey was being sold at the price of two pounds of silver. That's a lot of money for something so unappetizing. Well, just when the king of Israel was beginning to despair, the prophet Elisha predicted that within a day's time, not only would the siege from the Aramaeans be lifted, but there would be such an abundance of food that several quarts of flour would go for the price of just a fraction of an ounce of silver. Well, as unbelievable as that prophecy was, nevertheless, the very next day, a a small band of lepers from Israel made their way into the camp of the Arameans and discovered that the king and all of his men had fled away in a hurry. The Lord had caused the king and his officials to hear the sound of an oncoming army. And so the Aramaeans fled, fearing that the Israelites had paid the Hittites or the Egyptians to come to their aid. Well, when news reached the city of Samaria, the people were thrilled. They were completely, utterly amazed as they went out to plunder the camp of the Aramaeans and sure enough, had a royal feast and enjoyed the plunders of war at the expense of their enemies, all provided by the gracious hand of the Lord their God. Our text tonight predicts both famine and feast for God's people. Punishment upon Israel for failing to heed the word of God. And also the promise of a great feast when the days of restoration would come, when God's people would dwell in his presence for all eternity. I invite you to read with me as we pick up in Amos chapter 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. 
buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feast into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women And strong young men will faint because of thirst. They who swear by the shame of Samaria. Or say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan. Or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall. Never to rise again. And skipping over portions of chapter 9 for brevity's sake, let me move on to verse 8 of chapter 9. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as a grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day... I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the holy and inspired Word of God. Let us pray. Father, as we consider these weighty words, we would ask that you might illumine our minds and hearts, and may the meditations of our hearts and minds be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. By the grace of God, I can say that the fresh, my freshman year of college was something of a biblical feast. At that time, I had only been a Christian about a year and a half, and the Lord had given me an insatiable desire to study God's Word. It was like feasting at the all-you-can-eat buffet that you have when you go off to college. 
in the dormitories. I can remember hurrying back to my dorm after class to study the Word of God, to take copious notes in my journals. I was totally thrilled that in college you only have to spend about 12 or 15 hours a week in the classroom, leaving much more time to do your own thing and more important things back in the dorms. I would say that I was something of a Christian junkie, attending evening weeknight fellowships about three nights per week. I went on retreats and conferences throughout my freshman year with Campus Crusade for Christ, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Reformed University Fellowships, just taking it all in as a new believer. In fact, I was so energized as a young Christian that I contacted my the session of my parents' church back home in Houston to initiate a youth internship program the following summer and was able to serve the church in the same way that Josh and Elizabeth had the privilege of serving our church this summer. You know, hopefully every follower of Christ can recall a season in their pilgrimage where they experience such a yearning desire to know the Lord, and an unyielding passion to study the Word of God. What I find impressive are those people who have walked with God for years, even decades, who have never seemed to let their zeal for the Word of God diminish. But sadly, most, most if not all of us have known seasons of famine in our walk with God, where we feel dry where our desire is quenched, where the mere effort to worship God publicly or let alone meet with Him privately becomes a gargantuan task. We know that the Lord is merciful and delivers us, those His children, out of those seasons of drought. However, those who harden themselves, who become cynical, who become culpably forgetful and even disobedient to the word, may suffer the severe consequences of unbelief and discipline by the Lord's hand. Well, that appears to be the case for Israel in Amos' day. As we've uh, considered in recent weeks, over and over again, the Lord indicts his people for negligently turning away from God and turning towards idolatry immorality and practices and injustice. And now we see in the last few chapters how the Lord is prepared to send his own people into exile. And here in chapter 8, the Lord pledges to afflict his people with a famine of not of food and water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. God's people would have to learn the hard way. That if they would neglect the Scriptures, if they would not take the Scriptures into their hearts and their minds and their daily practices, if they would fail to train up their children in the way that they should go according to the Lord's directives, then they would suffer and experience what life is like without God. Empty, meaningless, as the Word of God goes silent and as the Lord's presence will be absent from them. Their very livelihoods will be taken far away from home, over the river, exiled in a foreign land to serve the enemy, to serve the gods, the pagan gods of an enemy people. Only the hunger pangs 
of a people who are famished for the Word of God, who would yearn for the feast of the Lord and cry out to Him. If, if God's people would cry out to Him, the Lord will very amply and very willingly provide to meet His people's needs. Throughout all this dreadful, these dreadful oracles that we have found in the book of Amos end with this glorious vision of a full restoration where God promises a season of plenty and abundance. The picture, we know, is ultimately fulfilled, not as Israel returns from exile in a few centuries, but it's ultimately realized in the new kingdom that has already been ushered in by the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we consider our final message from the prophet Amos, I want us to look at the just deserts of our own famine, as well as the generous delights of the Lord's feast. Chapter 8 opens up with a vivid image of a basket of ripe fruit, communicating through Amos that God's people were ripe for judgment, having ruined their privileged calling and justly deserving famine from the Lord. After all the warnings that the Lord had brought to his people, he finally reaches the conclusion that they are ripe for judgment. God will spare them no longer. The patient farmer waits for his crop to ripen so that he may take in the harvest and sell his goods. Well, likewise, the Lord had been patient with his people for many, many generations. But rather than ripen, into wholesome fruit to be shared with the nations. They had ripened into something worthless and good for nothing. On at least one or two occasions, my wife has purchased a a bunch of green bananas from Costco, and for whatever reason, usually they're very good, but on these two occasions, these green bananas never ripened. They just stayed green hard and bitter, and never turned into that that yellow, soft, and sweet sweetness that bananas are supposed to turn within a reasonable amount of time. Well, likewise, God's people had ripened, but only in a manner of bitter oppression of the poor. Verse 4 offers the Lord's indictment of how the people repeatedly trampled the poor. They go, he goes on to chronicle their abuse of worship, how upon their new moon celebrations and their Sabbath gatherings for worship, the people are only eager to end the service so they can return to their commerce. And even when they engage in their financial transactions, they cheat one another, skimping the measure, using false weights to gain unjust profits. And even with those funds, They use them to buy slaves of their fellow Israelites, treating the poor as no better than a set of clothing. Well, because of these things, the Lord swore that he would never forget the practices of his people and heap upon them their just deserts. The land would be devastated as in a flood. We've seen lately that the devastation along the Mississippi River Valley We've seen this past week the devastation happening in the Dakota regions with massive flooding. Well, so the Lord uses his image to show the great devastation that will come upon the land 
as a result of invasion. Even the sun and the moon would darken as an expression of mourning for the judgment that would befall the people of God. In verse 10, it says that the Israelites would be treated like the Egyptians, grieving over the loss of an only son with the shaving of their heads and the wearing of sackcloth. Well, the people were ripe to receive the Lord's judgments and the ruin that would come from a great famine. But of course, as we saw from the Word, this would not be a famine upon the land. This would not just be a lack of rain as it was in the days of Joseph, who was raised up to deliver Egypt and the family of God by storing away seven years of plenty in preparation for seven years of famine. Now, this would be a season of silence from the mouth of God, Israel, who had stopped up her ears to neither hear nor heed the word of God, the accumulation of the word that had been spoken to them since the days of Moses. Consequently, the Lord would end his revelation to the people. Now, as we look at this time and place in history, the Lord very mercifully continued to speak to his people for another 300 years, at least to Judah, to the south. But as we well know, the southerners, the the Judaites, would also follow their northern sister Israel into exile about 150 years later. But it would be during the prophecy in the years of Malachi in the 5th century who would predict that there would be several centuries of silence, over four centuries of silence before the Lord would raise up, as predicted by Malachi, the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Savior, John the Baptist, coming to prepare the way for the Lord, came after centuries of God's silence before his people. And during that long Meantime, Amos says that the men would stagger about like those famished, hungry for the word of the Lord, but not, fi- but not find it. A long silence. My wife tells a story, a brief story that her mother shared with us that on one occasion many decades ago when her mother was a young girl, her parents, Stacy's grandparents, had a fight. And the way they tried to resolve the fight was by not speaking to each other for an entire week. Imagine being with your parents and your siblings and observing mom and dad not saying anything to each other for the better part of a week. Well, as uncomfortable as that is, we use that picture here to speak of the silence and the alienation that the Israelites were supposed to experience from the Lord not continuing to speak to them through, through the prophets. But after this long drought, a voice of one crying in the wilderness did come to prepare the way for the one who would restore God's plans, to fulfill all the wonders and the promises God had in store for his people. As I think about the ministry of John, I also marvel at the unquenchable passion of the boy Jesus as he began to mature and to understand his sonship, his divine calling as a son of God to be the savior of his people and reconcile them to the Father. 
Now, I don't believe that Jesus, as a young lad, had all the inherent knowledge of, of divinity. I believe that understanding the Scriptures was something he had to learn. He had to discipline himself. He had to study over those young years. As we see the 12-year-old Jesus at the temple questioning the scholars, I can just imagine that years of fruitful study and paying attention and being a boy from a, a small remote town where access to the Scriptures may have been limited. Access to very learned teachers may have been limited. For Jesus to come into the presence of the learned and to question them and to gain further insights into what his Father had revealed since the days of Moses onward. You can just imagine the passion and the opportunity for Jesus growing on into maturity, further understanding his calling to be the messenger of the Lord. Well, it's humbling. It's humbling to me to think of our Savior, who was so limited in the resources available to him, and yet fully mastered everything from the writings of Moses to Malachi. It was at about the age of 30, we think, that Jesus began, after years of study and years of working as a carpenter, communion with his Father, ventured out to begin teaching and leading his disciples through a three-year itinerant ministry. And the nature of Jesus' ministry was so busy and so pressed, I just would imagine that it did not leave Jesus a lot of time for continued study in the Word. But I would would venture to guess that Jesus had a lot committed to memory, that in his discussions with people and through his sweet hours of communion with the Father, continued to immerse his mind and his heart in the living Word of God, that which had been revealed from centuries ago. This past weekend, my wife and I were cleaning out our basement. And as we were organizing things, we just kept coming upon resources, bukus and bukus of homeschool curriculum and books and all kinds of materials, things that we have purchased through the years, things that people have graciously given to us. Just a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were in New York City for a little getaway and just walking along Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue and Broadway, just store after store and place after place. Friends, we live in an age and a place of abundance. We have so many resources, so many opportunities. There is so much at our disposal. And just consider how how many resources we have to understand and know the Word of God. Just a week or so ago, we were in Central Market for lunch. And there were some street preachers there proclaiming the gospel. And as we passed by, one of them offered me a New Testament, and I I graciously declined, assuring him that I had several Bibles at home and trying to indicate that I somehow knew something that was contained in them. uh, But it made me think about how many Bibles I have, how many study Bibles, how many commentaries and resources and, and books that have been written by, by very learned men and women who are, are just pouring out the, the fruit of their labor 
and giving us further spiritual insight into the things of God in Christ. You, friends, you and I can go online to buy books. We, we can download a sermon or a conference a message from any topic, from our favorite preacher and communicator. Yes, we live in a day and age of feasting and great spiritual abundance. And yet, though we live in such an age of abundance, I think I can safely say that we still live in the midst of famine. It's disheartening to see how illiterate our culture is in the Word of God. It's, it saddens me to consider how many churches neglect preaching the whole counsel of God. Now, this is not an occasion to pat ourselves on the back. It's not an occasion to boast in ourselves at Westminster, but it is an opportunity for us to take heed, to not take anything for granted, but to receive an exhortation from the Word of God that those who neglect the Word of God will have it taken from them. Friends, we have at our disposal the the oracles of God, the riches of God's grace revealed to us in Christ. Let me urge you from this text to take it upon yourself to make a steady diet, a daily diet of taking in God's Word. They say that, experts say that it takes 30 days to form a habit. Begin this week and go all the way through to the end of July and you will begin a habit of daily taking in the Word of God to glean the fruit of wisdom. And in doing so, you will be preparing yourself for the great feast that awaits God's people. Well, as we move into chapter 9, we see that the first 10 verses offer a very disturbing picture of God's judgment, whereby He will shake and destroy the house of Israel and uh, as a grain is shaken in a sieve. But then abruptly, The last five verses of this prophetical work promise a tremendous restoration for us. Like like a father who is eager to console his weeping child who has just been chastised, so the Lord cannot remain angry with his people or alienated from them, though God must inflict famine upon his people. He is all the more eager to usher in a great feast by his grace. Now, the days of David and Solomon were considered the golden and glory years in Israelite history. And so it's very fitting that the Lord in verse 11 and 12 would speak of the great restoration of God's grace in terms of repairing David's fallen tent. It's interesting that he does not refer to the glorious temple built by Solomon, but rather the humble tabernacle that had been crafted in the days of Moses and maintained and utilized for worship up through the reign of David, where the Ark of the Testimony was kept. The words in our text in verses 11 and 12 indicate that this tent is worn and ragged and unimpressive. What a fitting picture of our Lord and Savior who came with no majesty, nothing that would attract us to him. We know that Jesus was largely rejected by Israel because he did not 
fulfill their messianic expectations in the likeness of King David. Yet even still, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, James quotes this passage from the book of Amos and sees its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Christ and in the proclamation ministry of his apostles. The purpose, as stated in verse 12 of our text, is that the restoration of, the, of David's fallen tent would serve for the nations to seek the Lord and live, to take up refuge under this restored tent, this holy tabernacle, the new Jerusalem, and the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I are that restored tent. You and I are the humble, unimpressive remnant who has been left here to provide refuge and a covering. Our arms are to open wide for the nations to come and find peace, to find nourishment, to find sustenance, to come to join us at the banqueting table, to feast at the foot of Christ. Weymouth goes on with vivid agrarian language to speak of the return of glory. He, said, he speaks of a, a, the reaper overtaking the plowman, of the planter, planter and the treader of the grapes coinciding with one another. The image here is, is that there will be such abundance that the, the, the harvesters can hardly get out of the way before uh, those who would come along behind them to sow the next season's crop. The image here is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, of a land that is no longer encumbered by curse. Yes, the return from the people who returned from exile would come back to their land. And it speaks here vividly of, of a land dripping with wine where the people can rebuild their ruined cities and plant their vineyards and their gardens. And the Lord will promise to plant his people Israel, never to be uprooted again. Friends, though we, though we see this prophecy fulfilled in part in the days of the return from exile, I think it's uh, very safe to say that we cannot fulfill this prophecy by merely, look, merely looking back upon the return from exile. Nor do I think that the modern nation-state of Israel is a fulfillment of this great expectation. Rather, these words are anticipating that which has already begun in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' teachings, in the proclamation of the apostles, we understand that it was Jesus who came to do ministry to a people in famine. And it was a people who were hungry and thirsty whom Jesus was preparing for a great feast that would come at the final age when he would return in his glory. Jesus, I believe, is using the imagery found here in Amos and other prophetical writings when he compared the nation of Israel in his day to a fig tree that had failed to ripen. And so as he cursed the fig tree, he was anticipating the day that the people of God, that the Israel would be crushed with the destruction of, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. for lacking the fruit of faith and repentance and for denying their very Savior. And so we see in Scripture this paradigm, this pattern, this biblical storyline of how famine leads to feasting. 
Israel had to endure 40 years of wilderness wanderings before they entered the Promised Land. In Joseph's day, the Egyptians in that Near Eastern world had seven years of plenty that preceded seven years of famine. And yet we know that it was during the famine that Joseph was restored and reconciled to his brothers and embraced his father after a long time apart. Friends, these messages from the Old Testament anticipate that all of us as God's people must endure famine before we can experience the feast. Jesus persevered for 40 years in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, undergoing a severe famine as he prepared his way for the cross. On the very night of his betrayal, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Over the following 12 to 18 hours, Jesus would suffer a famine, a physical thirst, of spiritual alienation and rejection. Jesus suffered acutely that separation that all of us deserve. Friends, Jesus quenched the famine that we may not be left famished for all eternity. In Jesus' most famous story, a son dishonors his father. He goes off to a foreign pagan land and squanders his inheritance. After a time, he finds himself destitute, famished in a foreign land. Well, as the son returns to the father, fully expecting rejection and scorn, he is quite amazed to be welcomed, to be received with pity, compassion, and acceptance. Jesus tells that story to show us the extent of the father's love for his returning people who are invited to join him at the feast. We see even in that story the father pleading with the self-righteous elder brother to come in to the feast. In another parable, the servants were sent out by the king to beckon the people along the highways and the byways to come into the wedding banquet to feast with the king and his officials. And friends, all of these images are not new in the New Testament. They Harken back to the Old Testament in Exodus 24. We see Moses and the elders feasting in God's presence on top of Mount Sinai. We hear in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 as he beckons, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. And in a similar spirit, we hear from the psalmist in 34, verse 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Israel was judged. Because they rejected the feast of the Father. Rather than delight themselves in the Lord their God, 
to enjoy his presence, to devote themselves to his word. They pursued false gods that promised feast, but only delivered famine. Friend, tonight, if your heart is hungry, if your soul is thirsty, seek him who alone can provide the righteousness and the satisfaction that your heart longs for. I invite you to come to the banqueting table of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Scriptures make clear that all those who cry out to the Lord in the midst of the famine will be welcomed home in the kingdom of God where He will dwell with His people forever. And may your times with the Lord in public worship, in private devotion, be a little bit taste of heaven, anticipating that day when we will know him even as we are fully known. And may your communion with the saints enjoy the sweetness of fellowship at his table as the Father gathers his sons and daughters from east and from the west to celebrate the great marriage supper of the Lamb. I invite you to come, to feast, and to be filled. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that though we deserve judgment, though we fully deserve famine, you have provided us a feast at the banqueting table of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who has quenched the famine, who has suffered judgment in our place. May we come and feast and enjoy ourselves in your presence. And may you prepare us for that great and glorious day where there will be no more famine, no more sorrow or tears, where we will see the Lord in all of his glory. Oh, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in your precious name. Amen.